The title of the message is Assurance by the Spirit. Assurance by the Spirit. And our text is going to be Ephesians 1 and verse 11 down through verse number 14. And this will uh, bring to a close this doxology that we have seen in verse 3 through 14. And as I mentioned in the last two messages, I'll mention again uh, to remind you that verse 3 through 14 is one long sentence in the Greek language. One long sentence in the Greek language. And so it is packed full of the redemptive purposes of God. And it reveals to us the work of the triune God, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we will focus in on the work of the Spirit that is interconnected with the work of the Father and the Son here today. So let's read our text and then we'll begin into it. Notice in Ephesians 1 and verse number 11, he says, "...in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him." who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. God the Father has shown us that we are His chosen people in the first section here. And then we saw last week how God the Son has redeemed His people during history, in redemptive history. And in this sovereign election and saving uh, redemption of God the Father and God uh, the Son, there are eternal promises given to the people of God. And in these promises, we find right here in our text an inheritance... For the people of God. Now, when considering this inheritance alongside with the spiritual blessings in heavenly places here, and as we saw that redemption in Christ also promised to bring all things in Him uh, in heaven and on earth, when we consider those things, how can we know of a surety that God will bring all these things to pass? How is it that we have assurance of our personal future of what God has said here? And the answer to that question is in the work of the Holy Spirit of God. You see, our text here connects us, connects the work of the Father and the work of the Son to the work of the Holy Spirit in the broad scope of redemption and what He does. Now, the Holy Spirit does so much. And not all that the Holy Spirit does is listed or referenced right here in this one text. You're going to find more of what He does throughout the rest of the Holy Scriptures. But what is made known here is the absolute assurance to the people of God and what they have in these redemptive promises given by God. Now, many promises are made in our lifetime by others... And many promises are not kept, are they? We think about advertisers. They make promises about their product, and oftentimes those promises fail. Doctors sometimes will make promises about their medical recommendations, and those don't always work. Politicians and government make promises, and we see plainly many times those do not come to fulfillment. Employers, employees, preachers, church members, spouses, parents, children, relatives, friends... All make promises that are subject to failure. They're not always kept, are they? And I'll just give you this short little advice. Never believe the promise of a shorter sermon by a long-winded preacher. (laughs) So never believe that promise, okay? I think I've been guilty of making that promise, but I'm about to just say I'm not making that promise. I'll just get done when I get done. But what we find here is that there's an eternal difference between the promises that man makes and the promises that God makes. What God begins, He always finishes. And if our redemption was purposed in eternity past, it will come all the way to eternity future. And so the work of God the Spirit here assures us that the work of God the Father and God the Son is accomplished, is being accomplished, and will be accomplished. 
So I want you to see in your notes this, this central focus of our assurance that is primarily rooted in God the Spirit while connected to God the Father and God the Son. Notice with me, number one, in your notes this morning, the ground of our assurance. The ground of our assurance. What is our assurance founded upon? Where is it rooted? Where is it grounded? Well, there's two aspects here I'm going to point out to you in verse 11. Notice, firstly, that in God's Son, our inheritance is received. In God's Son, our inheritance is received. Now, we note in verse 11, Paul says, "...in Him we have obtained an inheritance." Now, I must note this once again, as I've noted in each message of this doxology. Where is this inheritance found? It is found in Him. In who? In Christ Jesus. In the Redeemer. In the one who purchased us with blood. In the one who has come into the world as the God-man and given himself to deliver us, to free us from sin, and to bring us forgiveness of our sin. Outside of Jesus, understand, there is no inheritance for anyone. None. We have no inheritance outside of Jesus. The work of Christ's redemption on the cross is the centerpiece. It is the spiritual foundation upon which our inheritance is received. Without Christ, the only thing that you and I inherit is condemnation. We only inherit the just punishment that we reap for our sin and our exceeding sinfulness. And thus, Peter rightly preaches to those Jews in his generation in Acts 4.12, Neither there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So, salvation in Christ is how we receive this inheritance. But notice this, what exactly is this inheritance? This particular uh, phrase here, this particular Greek phrase, it's a compound word, that could have a couple different meanings or translations. And I bring these out to you because there are two interpretations here, and both interpretations are true of the believer and of who we are in Christ. But I want to point them out to you. Firstly, with this Greek phrase, it could mean that we were made an inheritance, meaning that believers are the inheritance as God's chosen people. Now... That principle for God's people, it is true, and it's one that we see in the Old Testament, as God calls His Old Testament Israel His possession, uh, His inheritance. Deuteronomy 4, verse 20 says, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of His own inheritance, as you are this day. So you see Him claiming them as His own. And this would be true of New Testament Christians also, as we read all through the Gospel of John that uh, God's people, they are given to the Son uh, as a possession. Uh, Paul wrote to Titus of Christ in Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous of good works. So there are some would interpret this passage as meaning when Paul says have obtained an inheritance that God's people are the inheritance. And that certainly is true biblically. But there's a second understanding of this as well. And that is how it is translated in probably most of your translations that you have right here in your lap. And that is that we have obtained an inheritance, meaning that this inheritance is received by the people of God. is something delegated or allotted unto them. Now, we see that principle through Scripture as well. Uh, God's people are given an inheritance... Uh, much like the Israelites were given the promised land as their inheritance is allotted to them in the Old Testament, we also see an inheritance given to the saints of God. Now, Paul, in a parallel passage, in Colossians 1 and verse 12, this is a parallel passage, he says, "...giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light." So that's the saints partaking in an inheritance that has been promised. Now, I think Peter describes this best, and I want you to turn there and read it with me in 1 Peter 1 and verse 3 through 5 for a moment. 1 Peter 1 and verse 3 through 5. And what a, what a glorious passage this is for the believer in Christ, for those who are the saints. 1 Peter 1 and verse 3 through 5, and notice what he says here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy... 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And notice particularly verse 4 and 5. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, what do you notice there about Peter's in reference to this inheritance for the saints? He says that uh, this inheritance is imperishable. It is undefiled. It is unfading. It is kept in heaven for you. And so we find what a, a glorious truth this is, that we have an inheritance to receive in Christ. So from these two interpretations of this word, as I've presented them to you, you can see that both usages are true. Both usages are true. The believer is God's possession, God's inheritance, while at the same time, we as believers do receive an inheritance given from God. I believe the second interpretation is most likely used here. I think the context of the passage points to that. Uh, Paul was be referencing that as believers receive an inheritance from the Lord, and the emphasis of this doxology shows us that uh, the saints are recipients of every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus to the glory of God. In verse 14, you'll see that this inheritance is something we look forward to in the future. So I will take that interpretation. So let's think for a moment. What is an inheritance? We consider an inheritance. What is this? The Greek term here means to appoint by lot or obtain by lot. It is to be appointed a portion of something. It is to be given something. Now, when and how has someone appointed an inheritance? When and how is an inheritance received? When the death of the owner takes place. Now, in the Old Testament, upon death, a father's sons normally divided his possession as their inheritance. They would receive that, right? We see that practice throughout history. We see it in our own uh, day and time, in our culture. That's a purpose of we have uh, wills and, and, and testaments. Uh, for example, my daddy inherited a, a wood bookshelf from his father. Uh, he said, that doesn't sound like a big inheritance. Well, my dad's dad was a missionary in Paraguay. He served there for 24 years. He didn't have much money. He didn't have much uh, wealth at all. So what my dad's inheritance was a, a, a wood bookshelf, and that's what he got from his dad. And I have received that, inherited that from my dad. It's standing in that office over there. It's that one tall wood bookshelf. And so it's something that's been passed on uh, through the passing of another. Now, what is this inheritance given to the saints? What is it that we have received from God in Christ? Now, the basic premise of inheritance presented in the Old Testament, it informs New Testament usage. So in the New Testament, God's eternal kingdom became the promised inheritance of all the redeemed of God. Now here's a reference in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 15. Therefore, he, being Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive what? The promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So, so you notice what takes place here. The redeemed are recipients of an eternal promised inheritance because of or through the death of someone else. And that death was the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has purchased us. And so this eternal inheritance is the eternal kingdom of God that we receive and will experience for all of eternity. Friend, this eternal inheritance could only come through the death of Christ who has made us righteous, who has cleansed us, who has brought us forgiveness and freedom. Now, conversely, what does the scripture teach of those who are unrighteous, the unbeliever? What did Paul write of them? He said in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? They will not be partakers of this. And so this points us to the central reality that Christ alone is what gives us the inheritance. And He truly in Himself is an inheritance to us. 
Now, here's what I want you to see, secondly, in the realm of this assurance, of this ground of our assurance. Not only in God's Son is our inheritance received, but notice with me, secondly, as we look at verse 11, that in God's sovereignty, in God's sovereignty, our inheritance has been decreed. It's already been decreed by God, who, has, who is sovereign over all things. Now, notice that he says, we have obtained an inheritance... We have obtained an inheritance while we see later that this inheritance is yet future. So he's speaking as if we already have it, but yet we know it is future at the same time. How does that work? Well, when something in the future was so certain that it could not possibly fail to happen, the Greeks would often use terms and speak of it as if it had already happened. And that's what Paul is doing here. That's what Paul is doing here. This points us to what we see in Scripture as the already and not yet concept. There are things in Scripture you'll see that we have already have, but at the same time, it is still yet future. The kingdom of God is already, but at the same time, it is future. We are saved, and we also shall be saved. We are sanctified, we're being sanctified, and we shall be sanctified and glorified in the future. And so Paul says, we have obtained an inheritance while that inheritance is yet future. How can such a future inheritance be so confidently and firmly promised as if we already possess it? And here's why. Because of God's absolute sovereignty in predestination. That is the reason. Why is it that what we see here is promised to us in the future as if we already have it? Possession. Because God is sovereign over all of history. He's sovereign over his people. Now notice what Paul says in verse 11. He says concerning this inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Now remember that predestined means to decide upon beforehand. To predetermine something. Now in verse 5, what did we see was already predetermined or predestined by God? It was our adoption as sons in Christ. God predetermined that for us. And here we see that as sons, our inheritance also has been predestined and predetermined for us by God. Now, we make some connections here. How is this inheritance connected to our adoption as sons? Well, because through our adoption in Christ, what have we become? We have become heirs. We have become joint heirs with Christ. Now, when, it, when someone receives an inheritance or when there's something designated as an inheritance, who does that inheritance go to when someone dies? It's very unusual that it goes to someone who's not an heir. So I know sometimes you can write in and designate something to someone who's not an heir. But primarily, who does it go to? It goes to the heirs, right? It goes to the heirs. And so as adopted sons... We are heirs and receive the inheritance of this kingdom in Christ. Galatians 4 and verse 7. Listen to the scriptures. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Then an heir through God. Friend, you you see the contrast of who we were and who we are now in Christ? I mean, before Christ, who were we? As we saw last week with redemption, we were slaves We were slaves of sin that deserved nothing but God's condemnation. And through the blood redemption of Jesus on the cross, He has set us free and brought us to Himself, making us His own children. Why did you become a son of God in Christ? Because God predestined that for you. Why is it? Why is it that you will receive? Why is it that you as God's adopted son receive this inheritance of the eternal kingdom of God? Because God has predestined it. Believer, understand this. The sovereignty of God is the hand on the steering wheel of all things. Throughout history, throughout redemption, throughout creation, all the way to the end. Without the sovereignty of God, there is no gospel. Without the sovereignty of God, there is no salvation. There is no inheritance. Understand this. It is all under His control. Jesus did not come into the world by chance. 
And all things by chance, he happened to live a perfect life and then he just happened to fulfill all of these prophecies about the Messiah and then just happened uh, uh, to die on the cross in the exact way that it was foretold hundreds of years before. And then he just happened to rise from the dead. There is no coincidence in God's creation. There is only providence, only sovereignty. And without the sovereignty of God, there is no gospel, there is no salvation, there is no inheritance. Now notice that Paul further exalts and emphasizes the sovereignty of God in this by saying, look at this in verse 11, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. You just pause and meditate on that for a moment. Who works all things according to the counsel of His will. The word for works there is the the Greek term energeo, from which we get such English words as energy or energetic or energize. And this shows us the active power of God in fulfilling His purposes and His counsel. You see, when God spoke every molecule into existence, Every single molecule immediately operated and continues to operate according to his precise plan. You understand that he's sovereign over the most minute little details that we fail to even recognize. And I don't know about you, but that is a comfort to me. That every detail of my day is in the sovereign hand of God. And whatever he purposes for me is always the best according to his wisdom. Now listen to Lamentations 3 and verse 37. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord commanded it? Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? You understand there is nothing in all of creation that is outside of the sovereign control of God, which is why Paul says God works all things for His purposes. I love this quote by R.C. Sproul. He says, if there is one single molecule in the universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. Just ponder that reality for a moment. Any other person or thing that has sovereignty outside of God's sovereignty is on the same level as God, having complete sovereignty. Guess what, friend? There is no one or no thing on the same level of God, or has the sovereignty that he has. Nothing is outside of his sovereignty. Now, here's the thing. We don't always understand God's sovereign purposes. But that doesn't mean we can deny his sovereign purposes. That's that's a key issue here. God is sovereign over all things. And there are going to be things that you're not going to fully understand and comprehend with your finite mind as to the infinite mind of God. And I'm reserved and I'm content. To say, I don't have to understand the mind of God, but I had better believe what His revelation has expressed to us. You see, all of creation, all of redemption, all of history are following God's ordained plan to an ending in which God will be glorified in His mercy and in His justice. You understand that that God, He could have created an infinite amount of worlds which assures us that this world is the very best that could have been created, even with the darkness and the evil that we see around us. God does not approve of it. God is not, uh, God, God is not responsible for evil. But at the same time, understand this, God has a purpose in which it will be used, and the end purpose will be His own glory. He is the one who governs history. Isaiah writes concerning God's governing of history and saying, Isaiah 46 and verse 9 through 10, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Every aspect of our redemption, understand, is solely worked out by God alone. Nothing outside of Himself has influenced His works in our election, in our redemption, in our glorification. He is not influenced by outside sources. He's influenced only by Himself because He's God. And here's what we find with this. Without this, 
without the sovereignty of God, without the salvation in the Son, we have no assurance of anything. We have no assurance of anything. And how is it that you and I know these truths? It is because of the work of the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit, understand, a Holy Spirit moved men with divine inspiration to pin down the words that we are studying, giving it life and breath, that this is the word of the living God. These aren't just man-made words. These aren't just, uh, just uh, pinned down uh, insights and spiritual thoughts from those who, are, who seem to be near to God. No, this is the inspired God-breathed Word of God, and that is the Spirit's role. The Spirit inspired these words we're reading, and the Spirit has been at work in God's sovereign purposes for all of eternity. Which brings us to number two. I want you to see, secondly... We see the ground of our assurance assurance is in the work of the Son and the Father, which we know the Spirit takes place in that too. But notice the gospel of our assurance. The gospel, the good news of our assurance, the gospel of our assurance. And I want to point out two things to you here. The first thing I want to point out to you is the conversion of the sinner. We see the conversion of the sinner. All right? Now, coming to verse 13, he says, In him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the the promised Holy Spirit. Now, through this passage, he gives us a couple key observations. Firstly, I want to show you that Paul shows the union of both Jew and Gentile in receiving Christ. When Paul says in verse 13, you also, he's making a specific reference to A group of people different than previous. Notice earlier that in verse 12 he used we. He says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Who were those who were first to hope in Christ? It was those early Jewish believers. Jesus was a Jew. He came through the Jewish people. He preached the gospel to the Jewish people. The early church, we see a large Jewish conversion there. They were first to believe in Christ before the gospel went out unto the Gentiles in which Paul says, you also, you also have believed in him. So we see that process in the early era of the church, how this came to bow. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so, having believed in Christ, these Ephesians also were saved, just as the Jews were saved. Now, Paul will make it unmistakably clear through this letter that the Jews and Gentiles are one people in Christ. They are not two separate peoples in Christ. There is only one God's chosen people, and it is all those who are in Christ. It has nothing to do with ethnicity or or heritage or background. Understand that. God's people are one people. But notice secondly here that this, in this verse, Paul reveals to us the human vo- viewpoint of what happens in conversion. And I think this is important. Throughout this doxology, it has been saturated with the divine viewpoint, with what God has done, right? His eternal election and predestination of God's people. And so we understand that through all of salvation... All glory and credit goes only to God alone. But does God's predestining work eliminate the responsibility of man and the necessity of faith? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility may seem at odds, but they are actually twin truths, united together, running parallel in salvation. Now, Spurgeon comments on this way, and I think I put this in your notes for you because I I like the way he puts this. Commenting on these two truths, he says, These two truths, I do not believe, can ever be welded into one upon any human anvil, but one they shall be in eternity. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the mind that shall pursue them farthest will never discover that they converge. But they do converge. And they will meet somewhere in eternity, close to the throne of God, whence all truth doth spring. So you understand that God's sovereignty does not violate man's responsibility to believe. Nor does man's responsibility in any way limit the sovereignty of God. Charles Hodge also comments on this, saying, Everything is comprehended in his purpose 
and everything is ordered by His efficient control. That control, however, is exercised in accordance with the nature of His creatures, so that no violence is done to the constitution which He has given them. So understand that both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility must be believed without reservation, just as they are revealed in the Scriptures. Now, what do we see here from the human viewpoint of conversion? In verse 13, Paul lays out a process in which sinners come to Christ. How is it that sinners come to Christ? How is it that the people God chose before the foundation of the world come to actually know Christ? Notice what he says. He says, when you heard the word of truth, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth. This is the fundamental principle and need for humanity. Lost sinners must hear the gospel. They must hear the truth. And what is the truth he's referencing? He says it's the gospel of your salvation, the truth of Christ and his, his, his salvation, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Understand that no person will be saved outside of hearing the gospel of Christ. This is why Paul was willing to go into the areas where Christ was not known or named. He knew that God had a people there. He must go there. He must go there and try to reach them and give the gospel knowing it will work. Romans 15 and verse 20 through 21, he says, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those have, who have never heard will understand. What a promise that is that the gospel would go to the Gentiles. And I'm thankful for that because I'm not Jewish. The gospel, you understand, it came to where Christ was not known. Went on up into Europe, crossed the big pond, on into the Americas. And eventually, some point in your life, you heard the gospel if you're a Christian. You heard the glorious truth of Christ dying on the cross and rising from the dead. Friend, Paul's reason for going where Christ is not known is so that God's people will hear the truth that is going to save them. Look with me, if you would, at Romans chapter 10. I want to bring this out because this is so key. Romans chapter number 10 and verse 14 through verse 17. And notice what he says here. Romans 10 and verse 14 through verse 17. Paul writing and says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him? of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. Verse 17 is key. So faith comes by what? Hearing, and hearing by what? The word of God. You see, this is God's ordained process by which He reaches and brings His sheep to Himself. It is through the preaching of the gospel. It is through the hearing of the Word of God. How does faith come? By hearing. This, friend, is why you and I must be zealous for the lost world around us. If our view of God's sovereignty dampers our view of evangelism, we're imbalanced. We're imbalanced. There's a ditch on both sides of the road there. There's always a ditch on both sides of the road. Only by speaking the gospel to sinners will any sinner be saved. And so I challenge us as Christians, let us not be lax in our evangelistic zeal for sinners. They need Christ. They need Christ. They must have Christ. This leads us to the next aspect of this human experience in salvation. Paul says, after hearing the gospel, what comes next? Believing. Believing. In whom you heard the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. You heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. What does it mean to believe in him? Well, the word here means to entrust oneself to an entity or in complete confidence. It is, it is putting our full trust into something or someone. That is what it is to believe. Now, there are many people who claim to believe in various gods, various philosophies, various ideologies, various things. 
Does any kind of belief bring a person salvation? No, not at all. We know that. Whom have they believed in? It is in him again. In him. In him, the one who has redeemed us. In him, the one through whom we have inheritance. In him. In Jesus. Friend, there is no other person to believe in other than Jesus. Any belief in any other person or thing is a failed belief. It is a false belief. See, when the gospel is preached, what takes place? The gospel cuts to the heart of the sinner, convicting them of their sinfulness, revealing Christ as their only hope of salvation, and brings them to faith in Christ by which they believe on God the Son. See, to believe is to possess and put faith in the person of Jesus, which is why when the jailer fell at the feet of Paul and Silas, he was about to kill himself, but he heard them singing in that jail cell, knew that he needed the salvation they have. He falls at their knees and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what is their response in Acts 16.31? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved household too if they believe you understand that believing is a fruit of God's working in the sinner Ian Hamilton comments and says God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world but that holy gracious election in Christ and eternity becomes our possession only when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and as we will see later in Ephesians 2 that this faith by which we believe even that is the gift of God You see, the gospel, we look at it, it is preached to multitudes and not everyone believes. Why does not everyone believe when they hear the gospel? Why doesn't everyone just run to Christ for eternal life? What makes those who believe any different than the others? It is not that they were better. It was not that they were more spiritually inclined. The answer is the sovereignty of God. Believing in Christ is evidence of the new birth of the Spirit regenerating the dead heart of the sinner so that they are now alive and have faith in Christ. You see, these two are woven together. As the Gospel of John, John the Apostle writes in John 1, 12 and verse 13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. I hear that quoted all the time, but they stop right there. You must read the second aspect of this. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of the Father. Born of God. So you see this connection between believing and the new birth. And so, though it is we who have believed, it is rooted in the work of the Holy Spirit. And so this is a glorious truth for us when we see even the human viewpoint of what happens with conversion. The lost sinner has heard the gospel and believed the gospel. And we know that God has been the one at work in their heart. Which brings us to letter B. You notice with me also in the gospel of our assurance is the confirmation of the Spirit. The confirmation of the Holy Spirit. Now notice what he says in verse 13. After they believe, what happened? At the moment they believe, right? It's an instantaneous thing. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Or the promised Holy Spirit. They were sealed by the Spirit. What does it mean that the believer at the moment of conversion is sealed by the Spirit? Well, there's several usages of this word. Several applications of this word. I want to give you, there's three of them here. One is to authenticate or confirm something as genuine and true. Secondly is to mark as one's property, ownership. Thirdly is to render secure or preserve, keep safe. And guess what, Christian? All three of those applications apply to you. All three of them in the sealing of the Holy Spirit. By the Spirit... By the Spirit, we are authenticated as the true people of God. It is authentication to us that we are His people. Romans chapter 8 and verse 16, Paul says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we might be the children of God. No, I read that wrong, didn't I? That we are the children of God. That we are the children of God. That we are His. Secondly, by the Spirit, believers are marked as belonging to God. Thirdly, by the Spirit, believers are secure eternally in God. Paul later in this letter makes note of this sealing again. In Ephesians 4.30, he'll say, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What's the day of redemption? It's that final and last day, the day of our glorification. 
And we'll see that here in a moment. See, when Paul says to these Gentile believers that they are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, he's saying that's proof that you are the people of God, just as the believing Jews are the people of God. And what does it mean that the Holy Spirit is promised? Well, we read through the Old Testament, you'll find reference where there's a promised work of the Holy Spirit in the people of God. Ezekiel 36, 27 is one reference. He says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus talked to his disciples several times about sending the helper or the comforter. Him I will send unto you. Peter preaching on Acts 2 verse 33 said, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves and seeing and hearing. You see, the presence of the Spirit was promised to God's people, both to indwell them and empower them in the gospel. And with his indwelling also comes the sealing. So notice what the sealing means. The sealing of the Spirit means for you, Christian, that you have absolute security. And with that security, you can have absolute assurance of your inheritance that is to come. That we are God's people called to himself. It means our security in Christ is not possible to lose, which assures our hearts. You know, assurances are what we all want with almost anything in life, don't we? We want assurance of things. If we're buying a new appliance, we want assurance that it's going to work. And to get greater assurance, what do we buy with it? A warranty, right? We want assurance that our car getting repaired will actually be repaired. We want assurance from them that they're doing their job right. We want assurance that our money is safe in our bank and in our our retirement accounts. We want assurance of a variety of things. But even the best of assurances promised to us in the temporal things of this life, they all fail. They're not promised to actually be an assurance to you. True assurance can only come from one who is infallible. That one is God alone. Our assurance of salvation, understand this, Christian, it rests not in our doing, but in the Spirit's doing. My assurance does not rest on me holding tightly to God, but it is on God holding tightly to me. My assurance rests not in me at all. It's always in Christ alone. As Jesus said of His sheep in John 10, In verse 28 and 29, he says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Friend, rejoice in this, Christian. You're eternally secure in the Father's hand. You can't be stripped from it. And that is what the Spirit's role shows us in the security given by the triune God. I liked what John Calvin also commented on this. He said, The true conviction which believers have of the word of God, of their own salvation, of the religion in general, does not spring from the judgment of the flesh or from human and philosophical arguments, but from the sealing of the Spirit who imparts to their consciences such certainty as to remove all doubt. This is what the Gospels brought us. The gospel has brought us assurance, converting us and sealing us by His Spirit. But notice with me, number three, we see the guarantee of our assurance. And this ties together with the sealing. This ties together with the sealing. I want you to see that the Spirit's residence in us affirms our future. The Spirit's residence in us affirms our future. In verse 14, we find that Paul writes and says, Of the Holy Spirit who sealed us, he says, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance? Who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now, Paul just said in verse 11, we've been predestined unto this inheritance. How is it that this future is affirmed to us? It is through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because He resides in us. He indwells in us. Now, we see a combination here of the sealing and guarantee in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 21 and verse 22, and I'll read this to you. Paul's writing to the Corinthians and he says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Sealing and guaranteeing woven together here. He says later in that same book, 2 Corinthians 5, 5, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee 
Guaranteed. Don't you see that all around? Guaranteed this will work. Guaranteed you'll have this. Now what does Paul mean by calling the Holy Spirit a guarantee of our inheritance? The word guarantee means a payment of part of a purchase price in advance. A dispersed installment or a deposit. Now when I bought a house in Texas, I had to give what was called earnest money. And in fact, some translations will translate guarantee as earnest. He's the earnest of our inheritance. Guarantee. Well, this was a down payment or a guarantee that I was buying that particular house and would fully purchase it at a later but soon time. See, while some house purchases fail, even with earnest money given, the down payment of the Spirit in us will not fail. The down payment on our inheritance that we're going to it and we have it will not fail. We have already been purchased by the blood of Jesus and the Spirit in us further downpays our future, sealing our future for us. So His presence is the guarantee of our future inheritance while at the same time in this life gives us a little taste of it before we ever get there. To know what it is to have joy and peace and love and all the blessings of, 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 of God. Hodge comments on that as well, saying it is at once the foretaste and the pledge of all that is laid up for the believer in heaven. So the Holy Spirit is God's first installment of His guarantee that the fullness of the promised spiritual blessings in the heavenly places will one day be completely fulfilled. Which brings us to this second aspect. The Spirit's role brings us to glory. The Spirit's role brings us to glory. Now there is some... um, Interpretive challenges here as well. All of the work of the Holy Spirit is interconnected here. But notice in verse 14b, he says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Now, this word for possession is what causes some translations maybe to differ, and I'll point that out. It can have Two way, two meanings here. Possession refers to our acquiring the completed inheritance by the Holy Spirit, such as the ESV portrays, portrays or God's people are his, are his inheritance and possession here that is redeemed fully and finally at our resurrection. For example, the NASB would translate it with a view of the redemption of God's own possession. And I think that is the most likely usage in that context. The saints are God's possession that will be fully and finally redeemed at a future point. Now, in the ESV, the word acquire is the word for redeems. It means to release from a captive condition, release, redemption. Some translate it as redemption. And so here's what Paul's saying. The Spirit guarantees our inheritance until the day that God will redeem or release us from our captive condition. The Spirit guarantees our inheritance until the day that God will redeem or release us from from our captive condition because we're His possession. What captive condition are we still in? Haven't we been freed in Christ? Yes, our souls have. What are we still captive to? Our flesh. Our body. You see, our body is still captive to sin. We wrestle and fight with it every day of our life, friend. And so this is what was promised to us is that that all of redemption, there's a future aspect of redemption, there's a past aspect of redemption of the cross, and so Paul's talking about this future aspect. What does this point us to? It points us to the day of our resurrection, our glorification in which both creation and the believer long for. Christian, do you long for that? Not about you, but I'm ready to get out of this flesh. Not till God you know, ordains that I'm done being used by Him, but when that day comes, I'm ready to leave behind this flesh. Paul said in Romans 8.23, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for, the, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. And friends, it is only through this final redemption that our bodies of our bodies to God, that we partake in that eternal inheritance promised to us. And the Spirit in us guarantees that that's our future. Guarantees it. It cannot fail because God's people are His forever. 
He chose us in eternity past. He redeemed us in history, and he is taking us on to himself, on into eternity. And with that being said, Hebrews says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he is who, he who promised is faithful. He's faithful. We were elected or predestined before the world or time existed. We have been redeemed in this present age. And we will receive our completed inheritance in the ages to come when we enter fully into the Father's eternal heavenly kingdom. Now, to what purpose has God worked all these things? And I'll close. I'm almost done. To what purpose has God worked all these things? Our redemption, creation, everything. Look throughout this text, and what have I pointed out to you is repeated. Verse 12 says, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. What does verse 14 say? To the praise of his glory. He concludes the doxology, bookends it, to the praise of his, go- to the praise of his glory. He opened it, and in in early on and throughout this uh, doxology, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. So all that we see in the work of the triune God for us is to the praise of his glory. And here's what we must recognize. If we ever see salvation as being about us, we're seeing it wrong. Salvation is not about you, it's about him. It simply includes you. It includes you. It's all about him. So as we close out this doxology, verse 3 through verse 14, what a glorious, magnificent doxology of praise this is. The Father has chosen his people. In Christ, The Son has redeemed His people with His blood. The Spirit assures His people because He seals them and guarantees their future inheritance. What a glorious viewpoint that is from eternity past all the way to eternity future. So what must this provoke in us, Christian? It must provoke us to worship the triune God. It must provoke us to be encouraged by the triune God, what He said of us. It must provoke us to be dedicated to the triune God. And friend, if you don't know Christ today, all of this being said today must bring you to see that you need Christ and Christ alone. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, understand He is your only hope of salvation. He's the only source of forgiveness, the only Savior, the only Redeemer. If you see today that you and your sin are lost and condemned and undone, understand Look and believe on Christ. Just as the scripture says, repent and believe on him. And you will be saved. And as you come to be saved, you'll you'll realize that all of your salvation was the work of God. From beginning to end. Let's stand to our feet and we'll have a closing song. Father, we bow before you this morning and thank you. Thank you for the glorious doxology, this utterance of praise that we've seen in verse 3 through verse 14. I'm thankful, Father, that you've allowed us to gather around your word and to expound it and dissect it and bring out what is in this text. And it is my prayer, Father, that you would cause your people to rejoice in who they are in Christ, to be humbled, to bow in utter worship and praise before you, for you alone are worthy of that, that all of our salvation, it's not, it's not about us. Lord, from beginning to end, it's about you. It is to the praise of your glory. And if there be one here today that is lost and undone, Father, it's my prayer that you would convict them and draw them by your Spirit as only you can, that they would be born again, that they would know of a surety of their faith in Christ. Bless this final song as we close out our service, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.